Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, Trump's top rivals for the GOP presidential nomination, they're heating up their attacks on him on the campaign trail. They're not attacking him on January 6th. New polling shows less and less GOP voters, fewer and fewer, think Trump is responsible for the riot. And a new Washington Post poll finds only 14% of Republicans believe he has a great deal or good amount of responsibility. And that's a drop from 27% just two years ago. Today, Nikki Haley will be in the early voting state of New Hampshire, while DeSantis focuses on Iowa. And their big push comes just 12 days before the Iowa caucuses as Trump continues to dominate the polls. Oh, we have a countdown clock. Steve Contorno knows about the countdown clock. Steve Contorno joins us live, starting us off this hour from <laughs> Iowa. We, we all are aware that it is almost time. Uh, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis out with ads targeting one another, taking some swings at Trump last night in their town halls and their events. Are we seeing movement on the ground before these caucuses? Well, we'll find out in 12 days, Phil, whether or not these uh, caucus goers here in Iowa are moved at all by these these overtures from DeSantis and Nikki Haley. They have struck this balance where they have decided that they cannot overtly attack Trump on one of his biggest vulnerabilities. This the January 6 riots, uh, these ballot pro these problems he's having getting on the ballot. Uh, instead, they've actually defended him. And in, in fact, in the last couple of weeks, DeSantis and Haley have said they would even pardon Trump if it got to that point. But here's one area they have challenged Trump on is that his decisions to not to show up to any of these debates. DeSantis and Haley, of course, will appear at our CNN debate next week, just ahead of these Iowa caucuses. Trump will not be there again. Instead, we'll be holding counter-programming on Fox News. Here's what DeSantis said on Fox News himself about, DeSantis, about Trump deciding to duck the debate once again. Why shouldn't he have to answer questions? I mean, he's running on things like deporting illegals and building a wall, but he did that in 16 and didn't get it done. So I think he owes answers to those questions. Um, he has not been willing to do that. Obviously, if you go by polling, it hasn't hurt. But I think now that we're in the new year, I think voters uh, do expect you to answer those questions. I think Iowans expect you to show up and debate. DeSantis will be right behind me at this community center in Waukee, Iowa, later today, where he will be trying to convince Iowans that it's time to move on from Donald Trump, that this inability to or unwillingness to debate is a character flaw. And it shows that he is not ready for the challenge of going up against President Biden and carrying the, the mantle for the Republican in another election, Phil. All right, Steve Contorno for us live in Waukee, Iowa. Thank you. And Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley take questions directly from Iowa voters in back-to-back -back events. The CNN Republican presidential town halls, moderated by our own Caitlin Collins and Aaron Burnett, they air live tomorrow night starting at 9 Eastern. New developments this morning in former President Trump's battle to stay on the ballot in Maine. Trump formally appealed to the state superior court Tuesday to reverse the decision by Democratic Secretary of State Shana Bellows, who determined Trump is an insurrectionist and is constitutionally barred from appearing on the state's primary ballot. Trump's team argues that Bellows is a, quote, biased decision maker and has no jurisdiction in the matter. CNN's Zachary Cohen joins us now. Can you tell us a little more detail about the president's um, legal appeal when it comes to Maine? Yeah, absolutely. The um, Trump team is attacking the secretary of state, as you mentioned, uh, um, accusing her of being biased and saying that she doesn't have the authority to make this decision to remove him from the ballot. Now, we have to remember that Maine is unique in that the process dictates that the secretary of state is the first stop for questions about whether or not someone can be taken off the ballot. And it, from there, if appealed, it goes to the court, which is what we're seeing happen now. But in Maine, also, too, the argument that Trump is submitting here is he's attacking something at the core of what 
what the Secretary of State's decision was that. He says, I'm not an insurrectionist. He really refutes that point outright. And that is really at the center of this section of the 14th Amendment that has really not just been, um, you know, the, the reason that the decision was reached in Maine, but also in some other states as well. So now the Maine Superior Court has about 20 days um, until it can issue its decision. Um, from there, it would go to the Maine Supreme Court, which has until the last day of this month to make its decision. Zach, on Colorado, do we have any sense in terms of what the effect of an appeal will actually have, what it will set off in terms of process? Absolutely. If and when Trump does appeal the Colorado decision, which is similar to the Maine decision and why it removed Trump from the ballot, it would essentially jump the Maine uh, decision in line. It would be because it would go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. And look, any decision by the U.S. Supreme Court would be the final say on this issue. But that remains to be seen if the U.S. Supreme Court will ultimately take up this case. There's been mounting pressure for them to do so as states have been litigating this on their own and honestly coming up with a variety of different views and opinions on it. So, you know, there are some state officials that are even calling for the U.S. Supreme Court to add some clarity, bring some clarity to the situation with the election um, looming so closely. One more thing. Can you articulate this immunity claim from the Trump team and, and kind of how they're doubling down on it? So in the federal case, the federal criminal case, this is the one overseen by special counsel Jack Smith and uh, relates to Donald Trump's um, election subversion, alleged crimes in that case. Donald Trump is defending himself by saying, look, I should absolute, I, I should enjoy absolute immunity and presidents should be protected from any act, from any criminal prosecution on acts that they committed or that they took that took place while they were president. Now, this is a really controversial argument. It's a sweeping immunity claim that Jack Smith himself has forcefully pushed back on. Um, Trump reiterating, though, last night that everything that he did in the aftermath of the 2020 election, he was doing in his official capacity as president and therefore should not be able to be prosecuted for it. Zachary Cohen, thanks for explaining it. Well, former President Trump aims to win back the White House despite facing those 91 criminal indictments and countless controversies. The Washington Post has a really, really interesting deep dive detailing, quote, how Trump reignited his base and took control of the Republican primary. Now, the piece notes Trump has turned his criminal indictments into a rallying cry. His GOP opposition has so far failed to coalesce around a single effective message or challenger. And his political operation has been more professional and disciplined than the past. Joining us now is Isaac Arnsdorf, a national political reporter for The Washington Post. One of the three bylines on a very, very good piece this morning. He's also the author of Finish What We Started, The MAGA Movement's Ground War to End Democracy. Also with us is CNN political commentator and former Trump White House communications director, Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Isaac, I, I was fascinated by this piece because I don't think people remember that when Trump announced that he was running, it was not at a moment of, it wasn't a pinnacle moment for him. Like the, the, the Mar-a-Lago room was half empty. Uh, people didn't really think he had a lot of juice coming out of the midterms. What changed? Right. It was a, an unusually weak moment for him politically. I, the room wasn't half empty, but it was kind of padded with the front row Joes and the kind of other... Uh, MAGA superfans, and what you were missing were like Republican elected officials who were, or, or major donors who were staying away. And then you have to remember, like the first thing he did after launching was have dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes and say he wanted to terminate the Constitution. So things did not get off to a, a great start for the Trump campaign. And it, you probably wouldn't have predicted uh, that this is where they would be now. So a, a bunch of things changed. One is that 
uh, the the Trump opposition within the party was kind of all pinning their hopes on DeSantis, and he took his time getting into the race, not until May, and Trump really used that head start to pummel DeSantis and start bringing down his poll numbers and reminding Republican primary voters what they liked about Trump. And the other big factor, you know, you and Steve were just talking about what the other candidates were and weren't attacking Trump on, and throughout 2023, there were there was a lot of money spent on polling and focus groups with Republicans. What would work? How? What messages could actually be effective in attacking Trump? And they didn't come up with a whole lot. And that's part of the, the problem that you're seeing the other candidates struggle with now. I mean, even things like side-by-side -side comparisons in policy positions, Trump supports this, this candidate supports that. In these focus groups, that actually backfired on the other candidate because the voters viewed that as an implicit attack on Trump. Um, Alyssa, I want to bring you into this conversation because there is this concerted effort reported in the Post to put more senior staff around Trump, right? But this campaign is different in terms of who is around him, right? A lot of people, there was a kind of a mass exodus. And I've heard that the people around him are more sophisticated and how they're approaching this race. What do you know? Well, in the sense of Susie Wiles and Chris Lasavita, these are incredibly professional operatives who've had great success, former Florida GOP chairwoman, um, that are smart advisors. They know when to reel him in. When Donald Trump goes out and says things leaning into he's going to be a dictator, they know to walk him back. I don't want to overstate, though, this notion that he's got this really sophisticated team around him. Beyond those two individuals, it's probably a mishmash of folks who've been clinging to him since 2016 or those who kind of stayed after January 6th. But as those two individuals know that keeping Trump out of the public eye, more or less, is actually the best thing they can do. Donald Trump is not out giving huge rallies uh, in the way that he was at this time in 20, I'd say 2020. Um, we're going to see that tick up. He's not on Twitter. He's not giving big sit-down interviews. He's not on mainstream media in a regular pace. So I think the public is kind of forgetting the chaos and the crazy of Trump. I think that's reflected in some of the poll numbers that we're seeing and how much he's surpassing his challengers. The more that people see him, the more they're going to remember the best operative in the world cannot stop Donald Trump. They cannot convince him to not be his own worst enemy. They can't convince him to not say and do crazy things. So that's we're going to start seeing more of that, I would guess, in the first quarter of this year.